This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. We have seen the downfall of Theranos founder Elizabeth Holmes, and now the Securities and Exchange Commission has filed fraud charges against her for mishandling of investors' money, some $700 million tied into the technology that the company was developing. And even with a settlement accepted by Holmes, which included a $500,000 fine and the fact that she could not be a director of a publicly traded company for a decade, the question of what is next for her and for Theranos is being asked. So with that in mind, we ask those questions and more to Wayne Gay, who's a professor of accounting here at the Wharton School, as well as editor of the Journal of Accounting and Economics. And also joining us in studio, uh, Jim Angel, who's an associate professor of business at Georgetown University. Gentlemen, great to see you both. Thank you for coming in today. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. Thank you. Uh, First, a reaction, I guess, to the fraud charges and also the acceptance by Elizabeth Holmes of this settlement. Wayne? Well, so, you know, I mean, I, you know, this has been an ongoing issue for quite some time. So it's not that this has just sort of popped up in the news in the last week or two. I mean, it's something the SEC has been looking at for a number of years, uh, I think since 2015 or 16 with this company. Um, And so, you know, at this point, uh, they must have decided that they had uh, uh, carved up enough information and figured out what happened to the point where they were able to put pressure on the firm and Ms. Holmes to... uh, to step down as a leadership role in the company, which I think is a, a key issue, uh, as well as uh, pay some fines and sort of you know think about moving the company forward. Jim? Yes, the SEC is sending a very strong signal, don't lie to investors. Well, and when you're talking about that, I mean, the amount of money that she had brought in for the technology, and, and, and to refresh people's memories, I mean, they were working in the medical field in terms of medical testing and, and blood testing, which for the variety of diseases that she had, I guess, said at the outset that that this device could potentially impact, we're talking about an incredible level of fraud that was involved here, not just lying to the investors, but also lying to a degree about the technology that was involved here as well. Exactly. Now, the company was an easy sell. It was a very straightforward idea, take a drop of blood, do a bunch of tests on it, and it was plausible because, after all, we have a number of tests. Diabetics do it all the time. They stick their finger. They get a glucose test and go on from there. So why not extend that? And she said she had the technology when she really didn't. Well, what about Theranos? Because this company is still active. Uh, They obviously are going to move forward. They are happy to a degree that, that some of this is settled. What about the future of Theranos in your mind? Well, it remains to be seen. My guess is they'll probably want to change their name to get away from the scandal-ridden name. The, uh, they do have some technology. They have put hundreds of millions of dollars into it. Now, can they really do 200 blood tests or only a handful? But even that is a step forward. So I would expect that uh, probably they'd be a good candidate for an acquisition from someone else who wanted to get their hands on the technology without dealing with the scandal-ridden reputation. Now, part of this also, Wayne, goes to uh, the company itself in terms of being a publicly traded company and how the shares were uh, were brought forward. And you touch on the fact that there was a kind of a, a split share 
here with Theranos in that people could buy shares in the company, but in terms of the input they had to make statements towards the company and potentially change path, they really didn't have a whole lot, did the investors? Yeah, I mean, this was a, a private company, but but you, okay. know, you, yeah. you have a, a, a relatively untested founder, someone that, that uh, you know, had, had left uh, Stanford University at a relatively young age, had sort of developed a, a new product that yeah. was being pushed, uh, sort of a golden girl of Silicon Valley, um, and uh, then an ownership structure where uh, capital was being raised, but the voting rights were not being given to those investors. And so I look at this uh, largely as a, a corporate governance failure breakdown where you had a founder that had effective, complete effective control. She owned yeah. shares that had 100 votes for every one vote that, that other shareholders would have per share. Um, she could put in whoever she wanted on the board. The board of directors was not filled with the types of professionals that we would expect, medical professionals and financial professionals yeah. and others. It was filled with politicians and, you know, military advisors and other sorts of people. And so, you know, the oversight wasn't there. The track record for the founder wasn't there to put that kind of trust and complete control of the company there. Um, and I think it just points to a broader issue that has been... Uh, widely debated over the last year or two with respect to founders, dual-class shares, and um, you know when and where the founders should have complete control over a company, and and you know at what point might uh, they put some effective controls in place to give that control back to the voting rights back to shareholders. And this is something that that uh, as you said has been discussed and it's been a topic of conversation. How prevalent has this idea been out there in the in the business world to have these dual-class shares? It's been around for a while. It was uh, 30 years ago. It was not allowed. Uh, so it wasn't allowed. The SEC didn't allow it. The exchanges didn't allow it. Then it was allowed. Yeah. Um, Google put it in place back in the early 2000s uh, with its founders. So its founder, the founders still have, Page and Brent still have effective voting control over Google, uh, even though they don't have the the uh, sort of cash flow rights uh, that would be commensurate with the, those voting rights, they have shares that give them 10 votes for every vote that another share has, and so they can control that company. Facebook has a similar type of system in place. Snapchat was, uh, or Snap Inc., I should say, the, the owner of the, the app Snapchat, yeah. was in the news a lot last year because they, uh, they went public uh, issuing shares to public investors that had zero voting rights. So the founders retained all the voting rights. And so it's been a big issue over the last uh, couple of years, uh, and it's something that should be debated. And, and you know, so there's proposals out there that might say, uh, you know, that that uh, having a founder control the company for a while once it goes public or once it's as it's sort of growing is a good idea. But yeah. that there might be some sunset provisions or other things in those voting uh, that voting control that would at least slowly release uh, control to to another group of investors. Jim. And this is a controversial area, and there are some who would argue that having a big block holder is actually a good thing. So, for example, the Ford company has long had dual-class shares, and the Ford family still controls the company. Right. And if you look at what happened in the Great Recession, General Motors, which had a much more widely distributed shareholder base and one share, one vote, went bankrupt, the Ford company took the actions they needed to survive early on in the downturn and did not have to go through a bankruptcy procedure. So there are some who would argue that having a large block holder or a controlling interest can actually be a good thing. 
because even though some models predict one share, one vote is optimal, the reality comes down to problems of corporate governance in that the shareholder base is so widely dispersed yeah. that most shareholders don't have any real power or influence or even the incentive to exercise power or influence when you have an atomistic shareholder base. So again, it's a controversial area. I don't pretend that one type is always the best or always the worst. So how do you determine? Go ahead, Wayne. I was just going to pick up on that. And I mean, I think that's a good point. And in these cases, you know, and I think there is plenty of empirical evidence that having a large block holder can help with with governance and yeah. sort of have somebody with sufficient shares to overlook, you know, sort of monitor what the company's doing. In these cases, you have a, a founder with that controlling ownership, and they don't have the same economic incentives as they do voting rights. Right. Um, and you're also dealing with, in many cases, untested individuals that have, you know, maybe great developers of products, scientists, programmers, those sorts of things. They may not be the best person to actually run the day-to-day operations, or at least not once the company gets to be a certain size. So I'm certainly not saying it's a necessarily a bad idea. I think that, but this is a good case study in some of the the dangers, the problems that can yeah. crop up when you have a founder that. Uh, has some missteps and you don't have that oversight or the ability to sort of look over the founder's shoulder and say, hey, I don't think you should do that because you don't have the voting rights to be able to how do How do companies normally make that decision in terms of, uh, of bringing forth the idea of, of dual class shares? It tends to happen early on in the company's life. So typically when when it, the, the founder is starting to raise capital, when the firm's going public, uh, the, the, the founders will decide uh, whether they think it's a good idea for them to continue to have to control. And the investors have the ability to say, I don't think that's a good idea. I'm not right. going to pay you very much for your shares. So when Snap Inc. came out last year and said, hey, we're thinking of floating public equity with no voting rights, it was very controversial. And investors yeah. could have said, look, we don't have a lot of faith in the founders. Uh, that IPO is not going to fly or it's going to fly at a low price. And that, in the Snap case... Uh, investors must have felt comfortable with those founders, but uh, it is a, a you know it's an issue that 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 the founders think about uh, and the investors that are there at the time think about um, and try to figure out whether it is the best thing for the company. But, or not. but seemingly that sounds like I mean it, it is more and more a gamble for the investor to be involved with a company where you don't have the say to voice your opinion for the most part because that that major block of shares is being held by. In this case, a founder who obviously had a variety of missteps. Although one could also argue that the vast majority of shareholders don't have any effective power either because management is entrenched and your shares are such a tiny fraction of total shares outstanding, does it really matter? If you look at the price differentials between voting and non-voting stock, you'll notice that it's not zero, but it's not large either. 844-942-7866 is the number if you would like to join in with your comments or questions. We're joined here in studio by Wayne Gay of the Wharton School and also Jim Angel of Georgetown University. We were talking about the uh, case uh, against Elizabeth Holmes, who did accept a settlement, $500,000 fine, and the fact that she cannot be a director of a publicly traded company for uh, at least a decade. One of the things that, that we talked about, Jim, before we went on the air is the fact that at this point, there's really not, I think, a whole lot of companies that would want to have her in the position of director or officer at this point because of the fact that there were so many missteps along the way here. Exactly. 
she is very tainted, so no public company would really want to have her on a board. What is the expectation then, you think, for her career path-wise? I mean, what could she... What, I mean, obviously she could get into a variety of different ventures right now, but at some point she has to, you know, she has to take some time away to, to let some of the media buzz die down at this point. Right. But also, she's very experienced, very intelligent, very talented, the and great salesperson. So I think she will land on her feet eventually, but exactly doing what, I don't know, but it probably won't be in a public company. Surprise? No, I mean, I agree with that. I mean, you know, there's there's plenty of evidence when these things happen that CEOs, directors that are in, in you know, in these kinds of scandalous Periods they have to step down for a while, take some time out of the limelight. So in any kind of public role where a company would put her forward as a spokesperson or as a person of importance, that's going to be a non-starter, I think, at least for a while. Um, and so, you know, it'll be interesting to see where she goes from here. I'd like to get your opinion also on the issue that's been brought up in a variety of cases by, by people in the public of when you have these instances actually occur, why is there not a push, and there may have been a, a, at some point in this instance, but why is there not a greater push to 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 try and potentially affect jail time with something like this? Because you're talking about $700 million of fraud, obviously all kinds of different levels of issues here right now. And we've seen through a variety of cases, Jim, through uh, the recession and the financial crisis, how many times uh, companies got involved in bad situations and the CEOs, the executives, the directors were able to walk with you know, a fine, which was a significant amount of money, but they didn't do any jail time. I can feel my blood pressure going up at uh, this, uh, you know, because of the fact that so many people in the Great Recession got away with fraudulent behavior and did not go to jail. But in this particular case, this is an SEC action. The SEC does not have criminal enforcement ability. Right. When they find something, they hand it over to the Department of Justice, and the Department of Justice does whatever they feel like not doing. So you know, the SEC has done what it can. They've extracted a, a huge settlement. They've extracted, you know, they've basically banished her from the industry for a decade. So they've done what they can with her. It remains to be seen what the Department of Justice will not do for her. Will they possibly do that? Will they possibly... Send it on to the Department of oh, Justice it, and the DOJ will do I mean, something. It's certain, well, I mean, whether they'll do something or not will depend on, you know, what they think they can can prove. I mean, the burden of proof is higher in a criminal case than yeah. it is in a civil case. And so, you know, typically what the SEC and the DOJ is thinking, you know, we they want to get to some settlement that, you know, looks like justice. Yeah. Um, and putting an ex a CEO behind bars is a very hard thing to do. Uh, the company's going to fight that typically. The executive's going to fight that very hard. That's not something that's going to settle. I mean, if they try to put an executive in jail, that's not going to settle. They're going to fight that tooth and nail. Yeah. They're going to be reluctant to cough up information about what happened, when, where, why, and how. And so it's just a lot harder to, to, to go that route. So it is go ahead, Jim. One of the problems is the fact that the SEC doesn't have criminal jurisdiction. And the Department of Justice, quite frankly, has other fish to fry. And if you're a prosecutor and you have limited resources, are you going to go after the drug dealers, the human traffickers, yeah. the terrorists? Or are you going to go after some white-collar fraudster? And basically, no matter what the Department of Justice does to her, she's 
already tarnished. She's already punished big time. And so you can see how the typical prosecutor is going to say, I'd rather go after the terrorists and the drug dealers and let somebody else worry about uh, the fraudsters. And, and does the fact that she cannot be a director or officer of a publicly traded company for a decade, does that to a degree have that kind of impact? Obviously, she can get into other ventures at some point, but not being able to hold that position or those positions does have to a degree that kind of an effect. It certainly does. Yeah, I think, I mean, you know, there's, uh, you know, again, it's even if the SEC said she couldn't do that, it's unlikely she would get one of those positions anytime soon. So, but it is that sort of public stigma that comes with having that, that tainted image. Uh, And, you know, in her case, a huge downfall, lots of negative publicity and attention, uh, you know, not to mention a loss of wealth of about four and a half billion dollars based on valuations from a few years ago. So like in any punishment situation, you know, there's always there's there's a desire to to punish people, but at the yeah. same time the the role of punishment is often a, to serve as a deterrent and then thinking about, you know, what the DOJ and what the SEC should do to deter other people from. I mean, that's what I think in part what they're thinking about is not only punishment, but also what's going to deter people from from doing this in the in the future and as Jim said, there, there's you know, Ms. Holmes has already suffered greatly. Whether she suffered enough, whether she should go to jail, whether the fine should have been bigger, I mean, those are, are things that will get sorted out. We are joined in studio by Wayne Gay of the Wharton School, professor of accounting, and also uh, in studio with uh, Jim Angel, who's an associate professor of business at Georgetown University. Your comments are welcome at 844 Wharton, 844 942 7866. Or if you cannot get to your phone, you can send us a comment via Twitter, and I'll bring it up on the show in that manner at bizradio111 or my Twitter account, which is at Dan. Loney 21. So let's shift off of Holmes for a second and go back to Theranos. Where does Theranos stand in your mind? Jim mentioned about, you know, potentially being a, a target for an acquisition by another company. Where do you see Theranos going, Wayne? Well, I think being acquired is certainly a possibility. I mean, it, it would take them out of the public limelight. It would put them under the umbrella of another company. I think that's certainly a plot. To the extent the technology they have is, in fact, very valuable, that would be certainly one way to go. If they would have remained as a standalone company, I think they would do it what a lot of companies do when they end up in these scandals. We saw Wells Fargo a couple of year or two ago that that ended uh, that had some serious scandals, and and there you, you tend to try to do something to indicate to investors you're clearing house, you yeah. replace board members, you replace executives, you try to figure out what the problem was and ensure investors it's not going to happen again. So. In, Theranos' case, I would think you'd, you'd if you were going to stay as a standalone company, you'd, you'd look at the board, you'd say, look, we didn't have the right oversight. I mean, I view this as, in part, a corporate governance breakdown. Yeah. We didn't have the right board. Let's bring in people that are actually going to look at the technology, understand the technology, understand things about investor relations and what our responsibilities are to those, to those shareholders and those investors. Um, and so I would expect them to do that sort of cleaning house. Well, and one of the other things to discuss here for a second is the fact that uh, Theranos, as they were developing this technology, they had set up partnerships 
with companies like Walgreens. And Walgreens, at that point, it was a very interesting time in that sector because you had more and more like Walgreens and CVS wanting to do minute clinics, do testing of, of different kinds within their locations. Walgreens had a, a fairly significant investment in this, and they had it obviously to a degree blowback in, in their face. How are they looking at this right now? Well, I can't speak for Walgreens, but you can expect a lot of litigation and with all of the claims, not just for fraud, but for breach of contract, lack of performance, I would not be surprised if Theranos files for Chapter 11. And then someone else will probably pick up uh, whatever technology assets are there out of the wreckage. Wayne? Yeah, I mean, one of the things about a private company is you don't know what the balance sheet looks like. You don't know what assets they have, what liabilities they have. And so... It's hard to figure out how solvent or liquid they are at this point, how yeah. big a pot there is for Walgreens and others to go after. I'm sure for the pharma- for the pharmacies, you know, they thought, you know, if this really is true technology, we can't left be left behind. We've got to make a big investment in that, and, and they did. Um, and now they're going to want to get something back from Theranos. It's just a question of is there anything to get there. But whatever moves forward, and if there is an acquisition down the road, there's going to have to be absolutely full – documentation of what the technology is and how effective it is and how far along in the process they are before any entity would probably want to jump on board because you're making such a huge investment. Well, and not only that, but there, you know, anybody that's going to buy that company is going to want to get a handle on what the litigation is, risks sure, are going to be. Too, so, yeah. so, you know, yeah. if, these, if, if all these lawsuits get filed, the, the acquirer, you know, is going to have to be really leery about what they're taking on if they buy this company. Jim? And that's another reason why the cleansing of Chapter 11 might actually be, you know, the best step forward, because that way you isolate all the claims, all the claims from the old company, and then the buyer could buy the assets and move on with it. So once you, if if they do make that designation, then you take the the actual just the technology, and you can kind of move forward and see how valuable that is for another entity somewhere, you know, in the pharma sector. Correct. Right. 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. We're joined in studio by Wayne Gay of the Wharton School and also by uh, Jim Angel of Georgetown University. Your comments welcome there or on Twitter at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. As for Ms. Holmes, um, she, uh, we've kind of alluded to this already, but she is to a degree a persona non grata uh, for a while uh, because of this. Can she, in your mind, I mean, one, it's one to get an opportunity, but it's another thing to be able to achieve the level of success that she was achieving, obviously under dubious means, but that she had kind of set herself apart as potentially a very important person in Silicon Valley because of this technology. How is that future look? Well, you know, I mean, I think it's a, you know, you know, memory can be short. So, you know, our, our mem- two years from now, three years from now, we're not going to remember. I won't remember all the details of this case in all likelihood. And, yeah. and investor, institutional investors are large investors that lost a lot of money or Walgreens. They're going to have a longer memory than we will. Um, you know, and I think that, you know, w- what I wanted, what I what I would want to know if, if I was thinking about hiring her or entering into some kind of relationship with her would be, you know, how much of what she was saying was true and how much was not true. So how, how good was this technology pretty good, just not as good as she was saying it was? Yeah. Or was it really nowhere near what she was trying to say? I mean, the stories I've seen in the 
in the press have been kind of all over the place. And yeah. It's been hard for me to figure out, you know, is it 90% true and 10% false or is it 90% false and 10% true? And that's what you'd want to know to figure out just how good she is or could be. Jim? And also, she's very talented, excellent salesperson. And if you look at, uh, let's go to one extreme of uh, various con men, generally they find other people to con. Now, I'm not saying that uh, she is like uh, Bernie Madoff or other con men, but the I could easily see her getting involved in another venture. She has a lot of contacts, a lot of intelligence, good selling skills, some managerial talent. Um, I would not be surprised if uh, she turned around and uh, started an initial coin offering for uh, a (laughs) pharmaceutical blockchain where you put your blood type on the blockchain. Uh, go ahead, Wayne. Let me. Yeah, I'll just add one thing. I mean, you know, it's also the case that in many fraud circumstances, you know, lots of different types of fraud, whether it's accounting fraud or whatever kind of fraud, they sometimes start with small lies, and then yeah. those small lies have to be backed up with bigger lies and bigger lies and bigger lies. So, you know, understanding how that all evolved here. I mean, whether yeah. this was something that. She felt she had to do or wanted early on, you know, she told some small lies and then she sort of dug herself a hole that she couldn't get out of. I mean, yeah. it's just hard to know exactly, uh, you know, how that evolved. Uh, quickly, going back to the, the, the dual class shares for a second, what when you're thinking about something like that, how is Wall Street viewing that and, and the impact that that is having on certain companies? Are they watchful of, of, of the impact that these dual class shares are potentially having? I mean, it's pretty controversial. I mean, yes, they certainly are. I mean, Facebook, uh, you know, in the last several months, uh, Mark Zuckerberg wanted to sell off some of his shares to be able to to fund uh, a foundation, a charitable foundation. Um, and he felt that if he sold off the number of shares that he wanted to to, to, to get that liquidity, that he was going to lose effective voting control uh, over Facebook. And yeah. so he responded to that by trying to... Uh, get the board of directors to uh, allow an, a new, another class of shares, an additional class of shares that would give him voting rights. Uh, basically, there'd be no voting rights shares to outside shareholders yeah. uh, to try to bolster his voting uh, ability. Uh, and it was floated to investors, and there were lawsuits that were filed by investors. They pushed back. So even somebody like that who's been extremely successful that a lot of people have confidence in, uh, investors sued the company and said, we don't think this is a good idea for you to do this. And so Facebook backed down. And then Facebook stock price had risen to the point where uh, Zuckerberg could sell off the shares he wanted to sell, uh, right. f- fund the, the foundation, and still maintain voting control. But but investors and shareholders are looking at this, and they, and they sometimes think it's a good idea, and sometimes they don't. And um, you know, I think it's going to be interesting to see it play out over the next uh, few years. And some of the the exchanges are watching it. The SEC is watching it. Some of the um, the stock indices, uh, the S and P five hundred, and I think the FTSE, one of the FTSE indices, have said that uh, you're not going to be, you know, we're not going to allow you in our index yeah. uh, if you have these dual class shares, or if you have cl- shares that don't allow shareholders some number of votes or some reasonable voting rights. Uh, so I think that is an evolving issue. Great uh, seeing you again. Thank you very much for coming in. Greatly right. appreciate it. Thanks for having Thank us. You. Thank you for yeah. having me. Wayne Gay from here at the Wharton School and uh, Jim Angel from uh, Georgetown University. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.